It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. Welcome, movie lovers, to another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. I am Scott, and joining me as always is Lauren. Say hello, Lauren. Hello. I always feel like we should do that in, like, Rocky and Bullwinkle voice. Like, hello, <laughs> movie lovers. Hokey <Hokey-smoke>. smoke! <laughs> 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 uh, here at Movies You Should Love, we love movies, and we like talking about them. We kind of we kind of look at it as a film school without all that nasty tuition, and school's back in session. Um, and so we thought we'd get back into this and look at some movies. We like to pick them apart, we examine them, we try to discuss what makes them work, what makes them special, or what doesn't. You know, some of these movies, do they hold up when you kind of uh, hold a magnifying glass to them? Uh, that's kind of what we do here. Um, you can check us out on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. Uh, facebook.com slash movies you should love or movies you should sorry uh, on Twitter we are at movies you should and on the web we have a, uh, we have a website movies you should love.com and people are seem to be finding us and they're posting questions and their own um, especially on Facebook it seems people are really kind of starting to uh, include like they're contributing their own content you know in their yeah. own way kind of uh, their own little uh, bits about movies like the most recent one was uh, a a uh, Somebody was uh, commenting on, uh, or they were kind of defending Ben Affleck being cast as Batman um, in the upcoming Man of Steel uh, movie, uh, or Man of Steel sequel. Um, and since I have a microphone and a podcast, I thought I would go ahead and say, I'm okay with it. I'm ambivalent about it, quite <laughs> yeah, honestly. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, the only thing I would say to it, the, the if, you want, if you want me to be negative about it, I would say two things. One... Ben Affleck is not somebody I ever would have thought of as Batman. Um, that's not good or bad. I just He's never been on my list of people like, he should totally do this. Um, it reminds me a little bit of when they cast Ryan Reynolds as a Green Lantern, where it's like it really felt like they cast, oh, this guy's popular and great. We'll put him in a superhero movie. It's like, well, wh- why why him? Why why this character? It feels a little stunt-casty. Yeah. Uh, the other negative I would say is I'm a little worried it's still going to be Zack Snyder's version of Batman in the same way I wasn't the biggest fan of Zack Snyder's version of Superman. Um, but we'll see. You know, that, that, that honestly wouldn't have changed regardless of who's cast. I like Ben Affleck. I've always been a big fan of his, and I've been really pleased with the last five, six years of his career where he has really kind of taken control of his uh, career and... Um, I think he really kind of figured out who he wanted to be, and he's been directing and acting in movies that he wants to be a part of, and they've honestly been phenomenal. I've been Academy Award winners, so yeah, uh, it seems like a strong choice. Yeah, but I mean, whatever. Just, just, yeah, what, what I would add is like, I I can't really say that I have any issue with Ben Affleck in movies. Like, I right. I don't think he's a bad actor. Even the bad movies that he's been in, and let's face it, he's been in a couple of really bad he's, movies. He's had, a, he's, had a, he's had a rocky career, I would say. But, up and down. But I can honestly say, even with those movies, it's not generally Ben Affleck that's really the problem with the movies. It's usually mm-hmm. that there's, like, horrible scripting, you <laughs> yeah. know, uh, poor poor direction, uh, you know, uh, poor, poor any number of elements to a yeah. movie that then, you know, it just gets magnified the more poor elements there are in a film. I actually completely agree. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I, I can't I can't say that you any movie that he has been in that has tanked really needs to ride on the coattails of it being Ben Affleck that tanks the movie. Yeah, a lot of people have been like, oh, he was in Daredevil, that was awful, and it's like, and it wasn't his fault. Yeah, I mean, he, I, was, a really, he was a really decent Matt Murdock. Um, that script was kind of terrible, and the direction wasn't the best. And it's like, with a better script, we might have had a Daredevil franchise, and it may have been great, you know, but mm-hmm. I can't blame him for what happened in that movie. Yeah, there were a lot of things wrong with that movie. But, <laughs> it really know, was. He, he was fine. Yeah. Um, See, this is what we do. This is what film school is like, and you don't even have to pay the tuition. It's wonderful. <laughs> we talk about movies. Uh, well, let's just keep the let's just keep it rolling, Lauren. Uh, what have you watched lately? Seen anything good that we should talk about? Uh, well, you know, I think the thing that we have both watched um, here, as far as movies go, is we both have seen Elysium. Yes. Rush out, uh, saw that opening weekend. Yeah, I saw it uh, just after opening weekend. Like, I saw it the, the Tuesday after opening. Mm-hmm. So, uh, right on the heels of it, but not quite as busy. Yeah. Um, what do you think, Scott? Um, I liked it. <laughs> um, you know, it, I, I've always liked Matt Damon. And so, it's like, when, a Matt, when I see a Matt Damon trailer, I always kind of check the box of, like, let's make sure to check this movie out. Sometimes it's a rental. Sometimes it's like, oh, we'll go out and see that right away. Um, but it's always but, something you know, to pay attention to. Right. 
and but knowing that it was written and directed by the guy who directed uh, District Nine, which is one of my uh, favorite recent sci-fi films, um, I was like, well, we have to go see this. I, I have to support this guy because he has. I love his uh, design work. I love his uh, worldview in a lot of t- a lot of ways, um, and he's you know. I like that this guy seems to be very interested in using science fiction to explore relevant social matters. Um, and that's really what you get in Elysium is a very, uh, very blunt and at the end, a little heavy handed um, uh, discussion of things of, uh, you know, it, it starts off with just like a kind of fairly almost standard sci-fi film. Um, but then the further, the deeper you go into it, you realize it's really kind of a discussion of uh, the healthcare system. And, uh, you know, it's not just a class war, which is what everybody was kind of talking about when the movie first came out. Like, oh, it's about all the poor people and how all the rich people have everything. And then you get into it. And by the end of it, you it kind of leaves you the question. Um, see how to, you know, it leaves the, the, the last moments of the film leave you with the question. of like, well, why don't they share it? If it's that easy, if it's that accessible, why is it such a big deal? And in that world, it makes zero sense. And in this world, you go, well, let's talk about it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's definitely very political and very relevant. And I think I think it may turn off some people, um, but I liked it. Yeah, I, overall, I liked it as a film. I thought that, honestly, the weakest part of the, the movie is the writing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's visually just astonishingly yeah. wonderful. I mean... Uh, it's it's so incredibly well made. Yeah, um, it's, uh, the 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 science fiction elements of it are so grounded and believable. It's a, it's a it's a world you could believe that we could see ourselves in in the next hundred two hundred years, kind of a thing. Like yeah. the robots, especially, I just loved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's a breathtaking film from a technical standpoint. It's one of those few movies where there's like tons of computer effects. And they blend seamlessly, which is yeah. so rare. I mean, not a hundred percent, but it's like ninety percent of the time you're like yeah. totally in the movie, oh, and yeah. and in ways that that don't normally happen in in Hollywood films. So it's it's really mm. a fantastic piece of work from that yeah. direction. Uh, to me, the story kind of lagged a little bit. It, I can see it, that, especially once kind of the uh, the main villain characters were introduced. Um, yeah. Both, uh, both kind of the uh, spoiler. Jodie Foster's uh, the bad guy. Yeah, uh, uh, her character a little bit, but then kind of her henchman even more so was just mm-hmm. um, he was he was kind of over the top evil for no apparent reason. That's what I was about to say. I, I, for me, the weakest part kind of was Act Three once yeah. everybody is on Elysium. Yeah, I didn't. It's like character motivations get a little muddled. Yeah, like when he's when the one guy um, I forget his name, but he was the main character from District Nine that actor um when he's hunting him on earth it makes sense he's this bounty hunter who's been hired but then once that tie has been severed and he's no longer really working for anybody you're like why does he care what is he trying to accomplish at this point and it, yeah. it gets it's a little over the top yeah. and well and, and even before that he's just kind of weirdly rapey and uh mm-hmm. And stuff. And there's just like not really a whole lot of other than there was a throwaway line where it's kind of like this guy is you know committed rapes and stuff like before like like you're clued in that he's rapey but at the same time it's kind of like why is this character this way do we really care or is it just kind of in there to make to make the good guy have something a little bit harder to fight against you know like I, yeah. like there's uh, there's a lot of that kind of thing to the storyline which yeah. is just I I really feel like the the script needed like three more passes to make it like really strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just the the storytelling of it. Uh, I think the first act is really strong. Yeah. Uh, basically, up through the kind of the first heist. Yeah. I think I think that works really well up through the first heist, and then at that point, it kind of starts falling apart for me story wise. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I I can't. Yeah. I, you know I I can't say say you're wrong at all. Um, but that said, I mean it's it was very enjoyable, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of uh, really cool stuff in it. So I I, I think it's worth people's time but absolutely i would i would warn people um that it's a little bloody yeah it's, <laughs> you know? it's an r-rated film and you know For uh good reason yeah and you know matt damon gets uh fitted in this exoskeleton that literally gets like screwed to his body so it's not it's not a comfortable sequence and yeah just like district nine you know like they he kind of explores these weapons this kind of weapon work that of the future that will incinerate or 
atomize or yeah. <laughs> make you yeah. go kablooey. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of quick manner. So yeah, it's there's like, lots of goo and stuff that spurts. Yeah. Yeah. I like again. Yeah, I enjoyed the movie, but it's one of those movies that uh, due to due to some of the violence and then due to the political tone of the film, especially in the closing moments, I could see it not being for everybody. Yeah. Um, I will probably own it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of those things. How you know how comfortable you are discussing things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it has plenty in there. I think to push just about everybody's button on, on any side of the political fence. So yeah, I kind of wish Jodie Foster's character had been explored more, especially yeah. especially her especially her final moments. You kind of go, but why? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, agreed. Uh, let's see. Uh, we both have been watching the newsroom. Is yes. one of the other things that uh, I yeah I had never gotten to kind of talk about it. I don't think on the podcast because you watched it basically as it came out, mm-hmm. and we Kelly and I didn't get to watch it until it came out on Blu-ray. I went ahead and just pre-ordered it because I love Aaron Sorkin, um, and I'd seen the pilot episode. So we flew through season one, like watched it in a week, and now we're as we record this, we're like halfway through season two or so. Um, have you done the Africa episode yet? Yeah, we're totally caught up. Okay, you're totally caught up. All right. Yeah. Well, when you said um, halfway, I was like halfway through. Uh, hang on. I, yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't been counting the episodes. Okay. Uh, basically, the last episode that we saw was the resolution-ish of the Genoa yep. situation. Yep. Um, which I was not expecting. I thought this was. I thought the Genoa story was going to be basically a full season story. I, I don't think they're done yet. I think there's oh, going to be fallout from the trial and stuff. Oh, still. absolutely. Yeah. There's, I mean, they're not done, but I. I guess I was expecting the. The reveal of kind of the whole thing, yeah, a little thought, bit more. I, like, I thought it was going to be really more bookended, and maybe it yeah. still will be. But like now, like they, the general part is over, and now they seem to be moving forward with the story, and not do they're doing. I think there'll be less flashbacks mm-hmm. at this point. Um, we loved season one. A lot of people complained about uh, aspects of season one. Um, I remember hearing a lot of people complain about the way uh, the women were portrayed in the in the show. Um, because Aaron Sorkin, I mean, I love him, love, love Aaron Sorkin, um, but he has a history of not necessarily always portraying um, women in the best way. Some people are kind of sensitive to that, which is crazy because he also creates some of the best female characters. Like CJ on the West Wing is mm-hmm. one of the best. Yeah. Um, but even she sometimes has her moments where it seems that, um, well, the way a friend puts it, you know, a man has to show up and tell her how to do things. Um, and I think season one had more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, you know, Kelly loves the women on this show. She finds all of them relatable, insanely relatable in certain ways. She kind of, especially you know, if you look at Mac, she kind of goes, um, I don't think a woman should behave that way in the in the work environment, but that's totally how I feel in the work environment. It's kind of like the, it's like she's, uh, the internal struggle that Kelly sometimes has or that she feels other women have, some of those frustrations they have, are being shown through the character of Mackenzie. But to show that, Mackenzie kind of has to have these kind of emotional meltdowns sometimes that you kind of go, would that really? Uh, I don't know why she's behaving that way. So anyway, yeah. That, I- that being said, season two... I think is like amazingly leaps and bounds better than season one. <laughs> I completely agree. I, I think I think season one, even by the end of season one, I think some of that had been addressed a little bit. Yeah, um, and I, I think season one got stronger as it went along. I um, love um, I love Olivia Munn suddenly. She's very good. You know, she's not a per- she's not an actress or personality I've ever completely cared for, um, but the character of Sloane Sabbath is just phenomenal and just fascinating and. Mm-hmm. Uh, is absolutely Kelly's favorite. She just loves, she has loved her this season and this story. And I love that they introduced her as like, you're going to be our sexy co-anchor because we need that, you know, and they very, you know, in fairly short order, especially, you know, once you get into this season, strip that away from her. And Mm -hmm. uh, if you think she's sexy, that's kind of on you if you're attracted to Olivia Munn, um, because what they're portraying is this very kind of fragile, very nerdy, very intelligent, very strong, woman who's you know dealing with the work the workplace and her personal life and all these different things mm-hmm. and it's um it's great <laughs> it's yeah. really really great it, yeah. and go ahead oh no i was just gonna say i, I completely agree it's uh i mean it's it's i'd say it's some of aaron sorkin's best writing this season at, yeah. at times uh i mean there's just some moments of absolute brilliance yeah in it all uh this is you know as a, my, my final thought on this show, um, as of right now, is that um, this is the show, a couple of years ago, I said this is basically the show he needs to make. 
um, because he made Studio 60, which was mm-hmm. kind of an interesting um, failure, for lack of it seems like a strong word, but it, you know, it only lasted one season. And even watching it, it didn't make a lot of sense for as an Aaron Sorkin project. He is so political as a as a writer, and he's so clearly interested in politics that Studio 60, which was a a show, if you guys didn't see it, about like the the backstage inner workings of a basically like a Saturday Night Live type comedy sketch show. Um, and so you saw a lot of that, but then there was also a lot of weird politics being thrown in, and episodes taking place dealing with characters in Iraq and all of this weird stuff. And I was watching it going, he needs to make a show, what I said was, he needs to make a show that's basically at a newspaper mm-hmm. or at a magazine where you have all, you have all sorts of characters and actors that would be able to represent different parts of pop culture you could have a a music person an entertainment person a political person and so that would allow him to write whatever story he wanted to and focus on whatever aspect whatever he wanted to comment on um he could use those characters to tell those stories and then the newsroom came out i went oh well yeah that (laughs) (laughs) clearly that's what you need to be making it's 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 a perfect vehicle i think for him and he has exactly the right cast and mm-hmm. freedoms at HBO and I, mm-hmm. I mean I think it's I think it's a perfect vehicle. Yeah. Jeff Daniels is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why he's not hosting the evening news. <laughs> right? <laughs> like I have to watch the show. <laughs> yeah. Big big fan. Yeah. Um I'm going to move on real quick to a little independent film that's actually not out in theaters yet or maybe now. Either, it depends on when you listen to it, I guess. <laughs> um, called Lifeguard. Um, I actually rented it off iTunes because um, they kind of released it early to rent on iTunes. Um, released before it was even released in theaters. Um, it's called Lifeguard. It stars Kristen Bell, who, as I've said before, I will watch anything she's in. And I'd kind of heard about this movie. And it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a small independent film. And it's just kind of a fascinating um little examination of it it's a, it's a real character piece basically about this young uh young woman who's working in the big city like i think it's like in new york and things aren't going her way and she kind of has a hard time at work and she starts struggling with who she is and so she goes back home um kind of for the summer and in, and kind of gets her old job back as being the, this lifeguard at the at the community pool basically the job she had when she was 18 and um she ends up kind of striking up this romance with a, a kind of this. She he's a much younger person. He's not so young that it's creepy, but he's clearly younger. You know, maybe, like I think he's I think he's just graduated high school, so it's like he's of age, but he's but just barely. Yeah, but what's interesting is they both are in exactly the same place, even though she's like thirty, and he's eighteen. They both are going. I, I don't know what I want to do with my life, and so it ends up becoming about the about the both of them trying to figure out. You know, for him, he's just c- trying to continue to develop, and while she, and he she is struggling with this arrested development um, that she kind of finds herself in of going, this is, is this what I went to school for? What do I want to be? What do I want to do? And what I thought was interesting about it was it felt like a role reversal as far as the sexes go. I think a lot of times in movies like this, you would see a um, a John Cusack-like character kind of going home and kind of living in his parents' basement, not knowing what to do. And it was interesting and really, uh, I thought, great to see it kind of kind of you know flip those roles and see a young woman. You know, and she's, she plays this really kind of strong character who is very confused and doesn't know what to do with her life and kind of finding herself in that position and in that place. It's a place that I have certainly been in and may continue to be in that place even now <laughs> and so it's, it was a very relatable film i really enjoyed it it's a it's definitely a dramedy um very dramatic um with some nice bits of comedy um it is rated r due to um um probably language and some sexual stuff because of the nature of uh this relationship um so it's not gonna be for everybody but I really liked it. And if you like small independent films, if you like character pieces, if you like Kristen Bell, um, totally worth it. I would totally recommend it. Um, I really, I, it was a bit more expensive than I wanted to. I think to rent the movie was like $7 on iTunes, which I think is a little crazy, but getting to see a movie before it's even in theaters is kind of fun. A bit of a thrill. <laughs> nice. Uh, the other thing I've been watching here recently 
is uh, a TV show. Uh, it's a British TV show off the BBC uh, called you had Me at BBC. <laughs> it's called Ripper Street. Um, it's set uh, kind of in the late 1880s, uh, basically right after the Jack the Ripper murders. Um, okay. And the series is set in Whitechapel, the Whitechapel district, which is, mm-hmm. of course, where the Jack the Ripper murders happened. Um, and basically, it's um, it picks up. The best way I can describe this is it's somewhere of a cross between the new Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movies, mm-hmm. um, From Hell, if you remember the the Johnny Depp Johnny From Depp. Hell, mm-hmm. and then a little bit of CSI thrown in for good measure. Okay. Okay, so that's kind of if you can if you can wrap your head around that, um, it's you know late eighteen eighties in Whitechapel right after this. Basically, the, um, it follows Matthew McFadden. He's the uh, the main uh, police detective um, there. Uh, he was in uh, Pride and Prejudice. Was he Robert the Bruce in Braveheart? Uh, or was that no. Angus McFadden? That's Angus. Angus. Ma- okay. Yeah, Matthew McFadden. Uh, he was like in the uh, the Kira Knightley Pride oh, and Prejudice. Right. He played yeah. Darcy. Yeah. Um, He's been in several, uh, lots of stuff. Yeah, you, you'd totally recognize him. Uh, and then it also has the guy who plays Braun in uh, Game of Thrones, uh, okay. Jer- Jerome Flynn. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody's favorite uh, sidekick. To uh, <laughs> yeah, anyhow, um, <laughs> but basically, they uh, there's this police detective who is um, kind of working in the poorest area in London. Um, trying to bring order back to the to the district after the Jack the Ripper murders have, have thrown the city into uh, a terrible frenzy. And uh, just uh, kind of dealing with the changes of technology of the time, um, he starts bringing like basic forensics into everything, which is kind of a whole new turn for for the police department there and stuff. It's it's very um, very fascinating stuff. It's it's a little on the bloody side. They kind of that's kind of why it pushes maybe a little bit more towards that from hell kind of thing because yeah. they you know they they spend some time doing autopsies and. Um, you know, they they show a couple of like like the very first episode deals with is Jack the Ripper back or not. So there's a couple of crime mm. scenes and stuff that are pretty They're pretty grisly, pretty grisly and that kind yeah. of thing. But um, but it's really I mean incredibly solid work. And if anybody's interested, kind of in that time period, detective kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, if you liked if you like kind of the the Sherlock Holmes thing, it's not it's it doesn't go quite as adventury over the top as that does, but it's still mm-hmm. got kind of that that movement and action to it that's that's really solid and um yeah really entertaining and, and quite good cool highly recommend it cool um, add it to your netflix it's on netflix the first yeah season. i was gonna say i've seen it on netflix and it's been one of those things that's it's tempted me because basically i'll if it has that little bbc logo yeah. i'll basically give it a try yeah and that's I basically what to- that's basically what i did and and have been very glad that I did. It's cool. been it's been kind of taunting me for a little bit on there, and I finally buckled down. And, <laughs> and uh, happy that I have. I'm going to breeze through two movies real quick, and then I'm going to take a little time on two other movies. All right. Um, Evil Dead. I I kind of had to check this movie out um, just because I have a soft spot for Sam Raimi and his uh, collection of work. And this is the remake. This is the new. Um, Evil Dead. Uh, it doesn't have Sam, Sam Raimi. I think produced it. I think Bruce Campbell also produced it. They are otherwise not involved. Boo. And it is, I and mean, it, I'm sorry. It is. Uh, it is the two, the most uncomfortable, cringeworthy, squirming two hours <laughs> I have spent on the sofa, maybe ever. Um, so if that it sounds, sounds fantastic. Yeah. So if that sounds like a good time to you, uh, it's it's one of those movies. It's like the horror genre is not for me. It's not my genre. Um, every once in a while, I kind of go. I'm gonna check this out. I'm gonna get in the. I'm gonna put my toe in the shallow end here and check this out because people keep talking about it. Um, this would be like trying to do that and having somebody throw you in the deep end instead, um, because it is. I guess it's a good horror film because I didn't enjoy <laughs> it, um, but I didn't enjoy it. I think for the right reasons, if that makes sense. It's like okay. it's it's a really unpleasant movie that. Um, it doesn't have any jump out scares, you know, like a lot of horror films seem to have. Um, it ha- it's just like this constant building of awfulness and horrific imagery, and just like they take they take the slightly campy Evil Dead concept, especially the more you know. My favorite Evil Dead movies, Army of Darkness, which is just a ridiculous <laughs> I mean, movie. Yeah, um, 
this takes like the those first two movies and treats it like no no this is actually this would be legitimately scary this is actually a completely terrible awful thing and treats it that way and so if you like horror films or you know this would probably be a good one for you um i can't honestly recommend it to anybody else though because it's just it's not fun it is not a good experience um but it might be good. I don't know. <laughs> it's one of those things. <laughs> uh, the other movie, uh, Pain and Gain, which I had to check out because I... <laughs> you had to. I had to. Um, I like Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Um, I find him endlessly charming and just full of... He's just like, if he's in a movie, I'm probably going to watch it because he just... I think he's a great entertainer. He entertains me. Um and he definitely did in Pain and Gain. It's a very dark comedy. Um, I would recommend it to, I think, most people, mm-hmm. um, especially if you've seen like Bad Boys 1 and 2, because this is directed by Michael Bay, and Michael Bay did do the first two Bad Boys films. So if you like those, uh, you'll probably enjoy Pain and Gain. It's you know about these bodybuilders who basically decide to scam a guy out of all of his uh, earthly belongings, and what what ensues from there i mean it's a rated r movie don't you know but it's you know mark Wahlberg is really good in it uh <laughs> dwayne johnson is fantastic like i could watch <laughs> like i want him to be in more movies because watching him in this i was just like man you're good he's like he's like he's got legitimate comic chops like i would like to see him in more um pain and game not gonna be for everybody i wouldn't show it to my parents but if you like a good dark comedy i'd recommend pain and gain because it is dark and it is hilarious <laughs> um all right i erase that from your mind now because i have to <laughs> shift gears completely to ip man one and two have you seen ip man i have not okay i i'm not entirely sure what compelled me to watch this movie um i've heard people talk about it um it may. Have, I, I think. I think there's a new movie coming out called The Grandmaster. That's all the trailer for. I think that sounds right. And I was like, oh, that looks kind of interesting. I've kind of heard about this. And apparently, The Grandmaster is a. It's about the same person, but is not at all connected to Ip Man one and two. Um, Ip Man is the story. It's, it's you know it's kind of a. I'm sure it's fictionalized account of a real person about Master Ip uh, who lived in China uh, 1930s. I'm going to say um, he he ended up famously become became the man who trained Bruce Lee. That's mm. kind of what people know him for. Um, but this movie, these two movies, kind of tell his story, um, and they're fantastic they're really really good and i they're both on netflix right now and i would love for you to put them on your uh on your in your queue and uh check them out because what they are especially the first one is a kung fu braveheart Hmm. um and that's that might sound like a ridiculous you had me at braveheart (laughs) it but it's like it's really just a a a fascinating film very well done uh donnie i think his name is donnie yen is the main character who plays uh master ip and um, he is basically this man who doesn't want to get involved with local politics. He doesn't want to get involved with a lot of things. Um, and he's living in this kind of small town. Um, and you get the sense that like Kung Fu used to be this revered art, of uh, uh, revered martial arts. And now it's basically become this thing that basically everybody's doing it. And everybody has a dojo. Everybody has these training places. And... Um, and so and now it's it's kind of a joke, and it's just, and some people kind of come by and they go, "Why don't you have a a dojo, you know, Master uh, Master Ip?" And he's just like, "No, no, no, I'm just, I'm just living here, doing my thing, taking care of my family." And due to due to a series of circumstances, he gets pulled into this. It's not quite a competition, but these men come in from another town and they want to set up a dojo, and they challenge him, and they he ends up kind of having this fight with these guys and kind of restores a certain amount of balance to the town. But he does this like right before Japan invades China in world war two. Hmm. And then the Japanese, go, they start on all these things are kind of based on real facts, including like the Japanese, uh, started holding tournaments so that they could learn Chinese Kung Fu so that they could use it in their fight against the rest of China or use it in their, with their fight, um, with the rest of the world. And, they want Ip to train their soldiers in this. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. 
and it's really just but you know again and the comparison to Braveheart is that he does end up fighting but he fights the Japanese and it's like these little moments like I don't really know a lot of Chinese history I know more um, as you know the rest of the world interacts with them we know when Marco Polo shows up I know bits of that story I know bits of the story when it involved with World War II um, but to see a movie completely from the Chinese perspective um, about the events surrounding basically uh, World War II is really interesting. It was some really great choreography, and so I, I think if you if you like kung fu type movies, you're going to enjoy it. But the performances are so solid. It's not a silly, it's not a silly movie. It's not like I, I sometimes think of you know Chinese kung fu movies as being these kind of silly, over the top, choreographed action sequences, and it has you know it has definitely some choreography. But like the the performance of Master Ip is just again I believe his name is Donnie Yen, um, just solid. Like I, I I put him next to William Wallace. It's that it's that same kind of character, but he's much more introverted than uh, Mel Gibson's portrayal of William Wallace ever was. Um, and then in the sequel, uh, Ip Man Two, it's basic. It follows all the same characters basically, but after the war, and you hmm. see how. China has to put itself back together and how these people basically are trying to eke out an existence now that Japan is out of China, but that China has been left in ruins and the economy is terrible and nobody, you know, and the people are just trying to find jobs. Before the war, uh, Ip's family had this really nice, basically, mansion. After the war, they're living in this tiny little shack of an apartment. Um, I, I, I enjoyed one more than two, but really it's one continual movie. It's like it's it just picks right up where the first one left off and is, I would absolutely recommend it to anybody. These are, they're really, I say genuinely great films. Nice. Uh, that sounds cool. I've just added it to my Netflix queue. Yeah. I will have to check it out. <laughs> Please do. I, I want to talk. I would love to talk about them some more. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, all right. Well, I think that catches us up mostly. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, that's what we've been watching, and uh, <laughs> apparently we've had a lot of things that we've been watching, and uh, <laughs> at least a lot to say about. Them. <laughs> at least a lot to say about them. <laughs> uh, anyhow, so today's movie that we're really here to talk about um, is number seven on AFI's top one hundred list: Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Um, released in nineteen sixty-two and directed by David Lean, who also directed our previous episode, mm-hmm. um, Bridge on the River uh, Kwai. Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, yeah, uh, won a, seven Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. Um, and best picture, best director, best editing, best cinematography, best music. Yeah, and a, amongst others. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so again, this is this is a movie that I've watched now several times. Mm-hmm. So I have a very specific uh, perspective on it. And uh, Scott, this is your first time that you've you've I'm ever ashamed. actually. I'm ashamed to say that, but it's true. This yeah. is the first time I've ever seen this movie. Yeah, like officially, at least. Like you probably have seen bits there and were, pieces. Yeah, there, there between were, classes there were, and things, there were scenes but... that I had seen. Like when I was watching, I go, "Oh, I know this." Um, and there were and, and like the editing in the movie stood out to mm-hmm. me because I've seen. Um, part certain uh, certain scenes like when he blows out the match and the mm-hmm. cut to the desert. Um, some of those scenes I had seen, you know, as examples of you know how to edit films and what the you know stuff like that. So there were things that I knew about it going in, but I had never sat down and experienced the story and the epic majesty that is the Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Um, well, I think you just uh, kind of summed up the movie. It is epic majesty. I mean, that's <laughs> that is that is what this movie does like more, more so than almost any other movie it's just it's it's a huge a huge film i mean yeah you know it was, it was shot on uh, basically like 70 millimeter film yeah. so it's i mean it's just i mean from from the cameras on down to the locations i mean they're shooting on huge 70 millimeter negatives so they're just capturing giant vistas and and everything in this movie is real i mean it's not yeah. it's not computers generating everything it's it's you know, real people on real camels and real mm-hmm. horses and real sets, real locations. Yeah. You know, it's like it's not faked, and you can you can tell. Like when yeah. when they're out when they're out at the well the first time when they first when he first arrives, and you can just see the endless desert. Mm-hmm. That's because there's the desert never ends. <laughs> yeah, that isn't like oh, ten feet behind them is a green screen. It goes on for freaking ever, and it's just. 
it's amazing. Like they're they're Kelly when she, she didn't watch all of it, she uh, she had to go to bed because this is a four hour movie. It's yeah, it's definitely a commitment. Um, she kind of went. She goes, they would never make this movie today. It is way too slow. Um, but it's slow for all the right reasons. There are sequences where there's one spe- sequence specifically where they're they they're crossing the desert. Mm-hmm. This desert that they're like no one crosses that and lives. You're crazy. Um, and it's just like this. They they draw David Lean just draws it out. You know, just makes you feel the hopelessness of this trek. Mm-hmm. Where you know it's like it'd be really easy to be like you'll never make it. You made it. I can't believe it. <laughs> you know, it's like. It's like it is a it is a big it's, chunk of this movie. It was just like crossing this desert of like, look how small they are, mm-hmm. look how big the desert is. Now we're up close. It's, they're running out of water. It's like, and you feel it, and you feel it in yeah. a way. And it's it's you know the music helps, but it, there are sequences where there's not even music. It's just endless desert and camel sounds and the rattling of pots and pans. And you're just like, they're not going to make it. They're all going to die. <laughs> The movie's going to end right here. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, no. I mean, it's it's true. It's it's. Uh, I think that's what's really fascinating to me about this movie is that it just it takes its time for the, to to tell the story and to give you the experience mm-hmm. of the story. Like it's it's not just about what's happening to these characters, but it's also kind of letting you as the viewer, it like immerses you in their world. Yeah. Almost. It's. Well, they, they very smartly. I don't want to. T- I don't want to steal your thunder because this is something yeah. that you said um, before we started recording. Oh, is that it's this huge epic that takes place inside Peter O'Toole's eyes. Yeah, it, the whole movie happens in Peter O'Toole's eyes. I mean, that's that's what's so amazing is it's an epic film that comes down to a single character and what you see happening inside this character. Yeah, and which is a really I think smart and that that, that to me is the entire approach to the making of this film. They they pinpointed Lawrence. They go, it's his story. It's what he saw. It's what he experienced. And so the, the way the characters behave, the way they treat him, it's all of these reactions, basically. It's Lawrence reacting to the desert. It's reacting to um, the people he meets and the people reacting to him going, you Englishman, you love the desert. <laughs> and, you know, and they're laughing at him because they're kind of, you know, basically suggesting that because he loves the desert because there is no desert in England. And so it's this new, interesting, exotic thing. Because, but we Arabs, we love trees and grass and water. That's what we love. You know, it's because they don't have that, you know, or it's mm-hmm. like, and so it's this uh, kind of, it's not, it's not like a colliding of um, culture, but it is this comparison of the two. And, and so those sequences so to me that's going back to the the, the desert sequence like the film puts you in Lawrence's shoes you mm-hmm. know going I'm going to take you from the west of everything you know wherever you're coming from whether you're an Englishman you're an American whatever um, and we're going to introduce you to a place and a culture and a people and a place you've never been to before and so the desert is massive you need to understand that people die in this thing you know even if they plan ahead. Mm-hmm. People die in like the desert. Pe- people who intentionally live in the desert still die in the desert. Yeah. Because sometimes it's just the desert. Sometimes it's quicksand. Sometimes yeah. it's a storm. Sometimes it's just you did your best. You still run out of water. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Um, yeah. And so, so I mean, it's... it's it, we haven't even touched what the story is. No. <laughs> it's the tr- I mean, it's based on the true story, like, kind of on the memoirs of uh, T.E. Lawrence, who was a... British um, officer who basically is charged with going down to Arabia and uh, annoying the Turks. This is like <laughs> <laughs> this is like uh, during uh, during uh, World War One, mm-hmm. um, and they kind of went, you know, if we could, if we could maybe distract the Turks, um, it may make other parts of the war easier or our fight over here easier, and so. Lawrence goes down, and his goal is to kind of try to unite these different factions, um, and I guess the Arabian Peninsula to, in, to put, to, put their differences. So, yeah, yeah, put so chaos aside. basically. Yeah, and they attack the trains, they attack whatever. Just like let's uh, let's take over this town. Let's just mm-hmm. make the Turks fight us, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so which will take the soldiers away from the European front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you know it's it's basically he's in charge of a diversionary tactic basically. Yeah. I mean that's that's his charge, and it turns out he's a master at it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. 
and uh, and that he he is a dynamic figure who who not only does he end up uniting the the disparate peoples that he has been tasked to unite mm-hmm. but like does so in almost kind of a messianic sort of way yeah like wait he's 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 really played and i don't know i i don't know enough about the person sure. in real life um well, I mean, he's played, we're talking the film here so yeah i'm just saying he's played very flamboyantly yeah like he is a he is a he is a card he was like he seems like he'd be somebody who would be the life of the party if he was at your party um and so he shows up and is just like he is enamored with their culture and then just but at the same time kind of goes okay well here's how we're going to do it and i don't it's 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 fascinating yeah it's like he um he's not afraid to tweak the noses of his of england mm-hmm. of going oh yeah you shouldn't listen to my commanding officer because he is going to screw you over here in just a second you should totally do it this way um and he's right you know and so it's like it, but it's interesting because he may have, in a lot of the ways that he treats uh, the different uh, communities that that he tries to unite, um, he may have done more good for them in the long run than they ever would have had if he hadn't shown up. Mm-hmm. Because it seems like some of them were going to unite with England to fight the Turks, but they would have fought under the, under England. They would have fought under British soldiers or officers and may not have had their own sense of identity and their own sense of... Um, contribution that they end up getting to have and their own you know their own sense of self afterwards it's, it was it was a really Im- amazing movie the, the experience of being able to sit down and watch it for the first time um i was blown away like, i tweeted like i was goofing i was having fun with it because the first three to four minutes is basically overture and there's no there's no overture card there's no there's nothing on the screen and so i was like oh man i hope they fired the dp because this is really underlit you guys um i had no idea it was going to end up being the most beautiful movie i have ever seen <laughs> it's like this movie came out when did it come out like 1962 62, and yep. it i i i've never i i I was pausing it and showing it to Kelly going, I have never seen anything like this. There are these vistas. I mean, even, but these small moments of just Lawrence walking through the sand and you can see like, every fiber of his fabric and the sand. It's like, um, I got, I also, I was able to watch it on the restored, uh, Blu-ray. The restored Blu-ray. Yeah. And it was just the most gorgeous movie it's, it's, I have ever seen. It's, it's one of my life goals to go see it. In like a seventy millimeter print, so that would be cool. getting projected. Like that is that is a life goal that I have on my bucket list. Yeah, I, I, it's astounding. Like people yeah. talk about how visually uh, amazing certain movies are nowadays, mm-hmm. and they they are, but nothing touches yeah. this. It's just I'd, like I would accept a, a digitally restored like four K scan that's projected or something. Like yeah. I, I could deal with that. <laughs> it, but it's just it's astounding. I mean, yeah. the, the, you have these moments that you kind of look like okay, this is a nineteen sixties movie, but then they go outside and you're like. I didn't know they could make movies like this back then. You know, mm-hmm. we we love to you know flaunt um, the 21st century's filmmaking and all of these things, but you see this, and you're like, holy crap! They don't make movies like this anymore. Yeah, well, I I think this is that's the other thing this movie kind of represents to me is that in a lot of ways this is a a pinnacle film of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of that I don't know. 1962 is kind of it's before Star Wars. You know, it's before. Yeah. It's before uh, Steven Spielberg got in and started making mechanical sharks. It's kind <laughs> it's of be- it's before the blockbusters. It's before the blockbuster really became the blockbuster. Yeah. And so this is the epic, true Hollywood film. Yeah. Where everything is real. It's it's cameras on a location mm-hmm. with like magnificent actors. Yeah. Amazing sets that are you know real places at this point they're not just like sets they're they're real things that have been built and that uh you know the camera operators are masters of their craft it's 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 a thing where people every person involved had to be a true master it wasn't something you could go fix in post later you know or or reshoot it was something you had to get right on the day at the time and they did and they didn't watch any dailies yeah i was was reading that, that the director didn't want he just like he just showed up and filmed from yeah. day one to the end, and he never stopped to watch and go, "How did we do? You know, what did we get done today? Or let me see yesterday's. How did they look? You know, just that kind of confidence yeah. in your crew and in your own work is humbling and inspiring. <laughs> you just go, "Wow!" 
Yeah. It's incredible. It's just, yeah. I couldn't believe it. This, I was just sitting there enraptured for four hours. Um, it is, I, mean, I, w- I don't need a lot of movies like this, but I would love one a year, one every two years. Give me a solid four hour film that has an intermission that I can call my Sunday. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I understand that a movie like this would be massively impossible. expensive and Im- yeah. impossible, with the, you know, especially in the current way we do things. Um, but like, I would love for something like this to come out where you have to sit there and you have to pay attention and then you get a moment to breathe and stretch your legs and think about it and talk about it and then return to the movie. Um, I don't know. It's like, I, it made me miss something I never had. <laughs> you know, it's like being a child, you know, being born in the eighties, like, this is before my time completely. And I just kind of went, man, I wish we had that. And I wouldn't need every movie to be this way. I'm, give me some 90 minute popcorn flicks. That's mm-hmm. fine. But just one every yeah. couple of years give me something like oh hey from the director of Braveheart is the rest yeah. of Scottish well, history <laughs> I was going to say this, this isn't something that I, I was actually going to put because we always do the here's something else to go watch because yeah. I don't really think it is the same but it's I, I kind of feel like when when the original Lord of the Rings trilogy came out and you had mm-hmm. kind of those once a year for about three years yeah. uh, you know, every Christmas you had that to look forward to like that was almost kind of the yeah. sense it's kind of like here's this big epic large mm-hmm. event. It's not just a it's not just a movie. There's something a little bit more about it that's going to happen here that and you know, yeah. I mean it seems that I don't know. It seems like it would it'd be something that would have to break the model. It would be this really yeah. daring thing to do because if really to make it work, it seems like it, you could only show it once a day. Yeah. Um but like imagine like it, for example, the, there's a theater right down the road from uh, our house, and um, it on Sundays it doesn't really open until much later because um, I think there's certain rooms that actually get rented out by a church. But I, I'm just imagining like, if at noon every Sunday this year they're showing Lawrence of Arabia, you yeah. know, that's the thing, like, that's the movie, and it's but and, it, and it's this really long term like we're committing to showing this movie for the next six months for the mm-hmm. next year go down to your cineplex on Sunday morning, you know, Sunday afternoon, whatever, and... And go you can, see it. And go see that. It's an all-day event. You know, we're going to... You're going to sit there for two hours. We're going to break for lunch. You know, we're going to let you, you know, go whatever, and then come back. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's a model that would work for a movie, if they would still lose amazing amounts of money, but <laughs> it's like, man, that would excite me. The, the idea of being able to return to a movie, even like, go see it, and then a month later go... You haven't seen that? Oh, we're going. <laughs> you know, like I, I don't know that kind of thing. Just it excites me. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, something that you have written up here uh, in the uh, in our show notes. Yeah. Um, you have the cast list, and there's a line that I find very fascinating on it, which oh. is, uh, you have a list of like all the major actors, and then you say, and not a single woman. <laughs> yeah. And I, that's something that is very interesting to me about this movie is that it's, you know, every everyone literally everyone in it is male i think and yet and yet i'm not entirely sure like it's a like considering how male the cast is like it's still a movie i think for everyone i honestly wouldn't have noticed it if i hadn't read yeah it beforehand um when we do like all times we do this podcast before i watch a movie i'll sit down at imdb and i'll read the trivia i make it on wikipedia or a couple other places and go what should i know about this movie before going in Mm -hmm. um and that was one of the things. Like, it holds the record for longest movie that has no female speaking roles. There are a couple of women who show up in the yeah. movie in the background. <laughs> yeah, like they <laughs> you know? kind of cross the screen. Yeah. Um, if I hadn't read that, though, I don't know if I would have noticed it. Just because of the time period and the story being told. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, this is the 1930s, or 1920s for the most part, I think. Because he died well, I mean, in 1935. Yeah. So it's like, it's the 19, 1920s. Um, in the military... <laughs> It's like there's just not a lot of women that are going to be there. You could you could have them there, but I mean the honest truth of the matter is in the 1920s women would have been secretaries in the military. They might have worked for the military, but they would have been in offices, and those offices are not present in this film yeah. because it's taking place primarily in tents <laughs> or in the desert. <laughs> and so it's like it it like you said, it's a movie still for everybody because it's just honestly this is just the story, and then there just didn't happen to be any women involved in this story yeah it does seem like though today there would have been a woman 
There would have been a love interest somewhere. A or, love interest, yeah. or like um, uh, Alec, Sir Alec Guinness would have had a wife who would have yeah. talked to him about Arabia, like, oh, you don't understand, and she would have been played by somebody, <laughs> you know, yeah. who, who had a, a bit part, but would have been an important, mm-hmm. interesting part. Um, but it would have been definitely manufactured and would have been it would have existed for a very specific purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it didn't bother me. And again, if I hadn't read it, it may not have stood out to me. Just because, due to the nature, it's just kind of like when you watch Band of Brothers. There's not a lot. I'm sure there's more women in Band of Brothers than there is in this. Um, but just due to the story that's being told, it's primarily a story of men. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, what's kind of your uh, verdict here on it, Scott? What is man? Oh man! If you haven't seen this, see it. Don't yeah. wait. Don't do what I did and wait 32 years <laughs> to watch it. Um, absolutely, check this movie out. Um, Maybe we touch on the cast. Peter O'Toole. I mean, in the, in the opening credits, like, and introducing Peter O'Toole. Yeah. Um, phenomenal. Just phenomenal. I mean, Sir amazing. Alec Guinness. Again, like I, I mentioned, I mentioned <clears throat> in the last episode, it was a real treat to see Sir Alec Guinness in the last movie, um, because I've only ever known him as Obi Wan Kenobi. Um, again, to see him in a, a role, where in this he's playing um, a Muslim who quotes the Quran and. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like. It, I mean, it's just a very earnest character, and that was that was was interesting too. It it didn't strike me as weird. Is that you have a lot of British people playing um, Arabic roles? Um, you mm-hmm. don't have a lot of Arabic people in this. Uh, like they're there, but they're more they're more of the bit parts as opposed to the main cast. Um, it, it is not a, con- a condemning, judgmental, lampooning type of a thing. Um, but so to see Sir Alec Guinness in that role is just like. And I, I recognized him. They, he has prosthetics on in this film that are really astonishing because I didn't recognize him, but for his voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then once I heard his voice, I was like, "Oh, oh, hey, one. <laughs> yeah, exactly." <laughs> Anthony Quinn, Omar Sharif, Jack Hawkins. It's like it is a great, great cast. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a who's who of uh, especially British actors of the time, yeah. um, with a couple of Americans. Yeah, in. but yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's. Amazing. Yeah, I, I love the relationship he had with um, the guy in black. I forget his name. Um, you know what I'm talking about. His the kind of they kind of they and they have this really amazing friendship, but it feels very real because they don't understand each other. Even though they spend all this time together, at the you know by the end of it, they're still kind of looking at each other like, why don't you do it this way? <laughs> like I don't understand. Why are you behaving this way? You know. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make any sense. And it's because they're from completely different parts of the world who look at the world in a completely different way. Um, man, just. Uh, I mean, it's it's a four hour movie, and honestly, we could probably spend. I mean, we could just turn the movie on and just sit and talk the whole time about yeah. how amazing every single second of it is, <laughs> basically. Yeah, I would say um, I would probably recommend people to do what I did, which was watch. Uh, I had I did have to chop it into two movie experiences um, because we have a child and I was tired. <laughs> you know, I basically yeah. watched until midnight. And I was like, I got to go to bed. So basically, the first part, the first movie experience I had was up through intermission, which is a really nice place to stop. Um, it's a good strong cut, and then the next night I watched the second half. Um, actually, it's not, it's, it's not it's not cut in half. It's like two and a half hours and an hour and a half or something. Um, Find the Blu-ray, find this restored version, which I think they say puts like 20 extra minutes back into the movie because there's been subsequent cuts. There was like the original cut. They said it was too long. He had to cut it down for the theater. And then he cut it down even more for television at one point. This restores it. And and it's a fascinating read about how they restored it because when they restored it, um, and I think they restored it in the 90s, like late 90s. they went back, they had all this film, but they had lost certain audio parts, and so they had the original cast come back in and redub themselves. Mm-hmm. And when you're watching the movie, it doesn't stand out. You don't ever go, oh, that line sounded weird. <laughs> that was clearly a much older, um, you know, a much older Peter O'Toole reading that. Um, it's great. I really can't recommend it enough. I mean, this is, um, if you. War, war buffs. If you like those kind of movies, World War One movies, even World War Two movies. If you like movies that explore um, the Middle East, it's yep. it's uh, bi- biopics. Uh, if you're kind of an yeah. Anglophile, uh, you know. I was really surprised and pleased that they they had the Quran in this. Like, mm-hmm. just 
just because it seems like in this day and age, it would be. I think it would be kind of considered a real PC move to have someone like oh quote the Quran, but and this is like this is again 1962, and they have uh, Peter O'Toole listening to someone very earnestly talk about ah, but in the Quran it says this, and he starts quoting the Quran to him, and Peter O'Toole ends up quoting it back to him later. Um, but I love that they include it. It feels very like a very earnest film with you know very like we want to represent this culture and these people accurately mm-hmm. not necessarily in the best light but accurately mm-hmm. yeah uh no i agree i think it's an amazing an amazing film that uh if you have not seen it watch it now <laughs> <laughs> absolutely um you know some movies that are kind of like it that, uh, there's no movies like it i think is the best way to to express that. this is this is one of those movies kind of like uh to compare it to citizen kane <laughs> yeah. where it's like it's hard to compare other movies to it because so many movies at this point are doing riffs on Lawrence of Arabia. And I didn't realize that until I watched it. Like, the structure of the film is just like Gandhi, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Or you have, you know, like, in, this uh, this was apparently Steven Spielberg's favorite film. And watch it knowing that. Watch this movie with Steven Spielberg in your head, and you will see him basically in every single shot of this film. It is clear this is how, why he sets up the cameras the way he does, which is something that's always I've always wondered why he shoots his movies so wide. Lawrence of Arabia is almost entirely wide shots. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, Gandhi. You said it. it yeah. That's a that's a great biopic kind of film, big and epic again. Yeah. Uh, similar. About one man. About one man. Um, you know, we talked about it before. Ben Hur. Mm-hmm. It's you know about ten years prior to this movie, it came out roughly. Um, you kind of see the evolution of. Yeah. Cinema, if you know of of where the epic film was at that point, but uh, again, Ben Hur, I think, kind of does a lot of the legwork for this yeah. film in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, absolutely. The four, the four feathers, uh, even even the newer one, but there's an old 1930, well, I want to say like 39, something mm-hmm. like that uh, version of it. That if you can get like the Criterion collection of it, it's a really uh, pretty uh, pretty wonderful uh, World War One. Uh, story as well, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, yeah, that was World War One. Yeah, um, e- either version is good, but probably the nineteen thirty thirty nine version is is better in a lot of ways. I haven't seen the thirty nine one, but I remember being impressed with the story at least. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's uh, like none of these are are perfect, but they all kind of capture certain right. elements of of that. Um, the man who would be king is kind of a it's you know it's a Rudyard Kipling thing, so it's not exactly the same world per se but it still has some of kind of those adventure elements and things um and then uh, one of my favorite films yeah King- kingdom of heaven um i know it's i think from this podcast it's one of both of our favorites yeah um again it's very different from lawrence of arabia but at the same time it has a lot of similar themes and a lot of um you know, a, a lot of interesting things with kind of like the Muslim Christian relationship mm-hmm. and the, uh, uh, so I, I would highly recommend kingdom of heaven, the director's cut. Yes, uh, absolutely. Definitely the director's cut. You don't, you don't watch the original theatrical cut ever. Uh, director's <laughs> cut with Ridley Scott, always watch the director's cut. Yeah. So, uh, those are some of the things I would say if you, if you're interested in some further watching, those um, are all excellent. And mine are completely different. <laughs> Cause uh, I think you but, there's, nailed- but there's no movie like this. Exactly. That's what makes it hard. Yeah. Um, what, what, it, it reminded me thematically of Charlie Wilson's War, which I don't yeah. know if everybody saw. Um, Aaron Sorkin written film uh, with Tom Hanks, Julia Roberts, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Another true story. I think it takes place in the early 80s or late 70s. But it reminded me of it because I feel like maybe it's just me getting old. Um, but as I get older... <laughs> As I go through life, it, I start to feel I have felt more and more powerless. And like, what can one man really do to change the world? And then you see a movie like Lawrence of Arabia, and you know it's a true story. Mm-hmm. And then you see Charlie Wilson's War, and here's like one person who changes the tide of a war because he says, "Damn it, I'm going to do some good now," <laughs> you know. And so it's like um, Charlie Wilson's War, you know, is about a guy who does basically what I just said. He gets involved. Uh, he's a Texas senator, I think, and he kind of gets involved with Afghanistan and helps them out. And it's, it is, I mean, he, it's, it has a lot less of the uh, meeting of the cultures, but it has a lot of conversations about 
what what this war is like over there and what's going on and what they need and you see the wheeling and dealings of again a, a very flamboyant charismatic character who does some good um again i will watch anything aaron sorkin writes and i'll sing his praises forever um prometheus is a mm-hmm. departure a bit kind of. <laughs> uh, well it's also ridley scott so ridley scott and it features a lot of the lawrence of arabia in it <laughs> that's true um and that's really why I'm going to mention it is that because uh, Prometheus isn't the the best of films. We had an entire podcast uh, dedicated to it. If you like to hear what we think about Prometheus, I still quite like it, um, despite some of its weaknesses. Mm-hmm. But maybe my favorite part of Prometheus is Michael Fassbender in it. The part where they run from the wheel. Yes. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. Continue. Uh, Michael Fassbender uh, play. This is not spoiler. I think it's in the first part of the film. He's a robot. Um, mm-hmm. He's a, he's an android in this film, and he is somebody who, while like while the rest of the crew sleeps in like in a cryo freeze or whatever, um, he runs the ship because he doesn't need to sleep, and he spends a large portion of his time watching Lawrence of Arabia and kind of uh, mimicking Peter O'Toole, um, dyeing his hair blonde like Peter O'Toole. Uh, it's it's an amazing performance. Yeah, it's an amazing performance, and it's the best part of the film. Like the sequence of him just. Being, and it's it's really phenomenal. So um, if you've seen Lawrence of Arabia or if you've seen Prometheus, go watch them again. It's like it, 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 even if it's just for that sequence, um, because it, it, what's strange is now that I've seen Lawrence of Arabia, there's large portions of Prometheus that make a lot more sense to me. <laughs> and it it actually, and I didn't realize this, and this may be part of the weakness of Prometheus, is that I think the movie Lawrence of Arabia actually. Um, doesn't it doesn't influence it but it informs why michael behaves the way he does even later in the film he's still seeing himself as a as a te lawrence you know mm-hmm. he's going i'm going to go down there i'm going to do this i'm going to behave this way because i'm going to do you know you're like oh to enjoy prometheus you have to watch lawrence of arabia <laughs> um so yeah check that out again yeah uh, i mean just as a side note i think i think prometheus in general is kind of that way as a movie uh, again we have a whole podcast and and uh i've even thought about it more since then and have like all kinds of other things i think it's a movie that you have to go into with a lot of your own stuff kind of you have to have a lot of things in place within yourself yeah i think to understand what is going on correctly in the movie yeah you ha- yeah exactly you have to have your own kind of opinions on the world mm-hmm. on religion on philosophy as well as having seen the alien films and lawrence of arabia <laughs> and and some other things even so i mean it's yeah. it's, it's a very strange creature it kind of will it has and it has some very interesting demands on yeah. the audience um the last thing i've already touched on this is watch lawrence of arabia and then go watch anything directed by steven spielberg especially especially like the the classic spielberg like yeah. up through jurassic park especially yeah. yes um because uh, i think i think once he brought uh like janice kaminsky in as his cinematographer it did change. um i think that changed a little bit of his feel but especially early spielberg definitely yeah. watch in light absolutely Lawrence arabia it's really it, that was what it was uh, there's so many parts that I can consider my favorite part of this experience, but that was definitely one of them is being such a fan of Spielberg, I've always watched his films and kind of you know try to emulate his storytelling and try to try to learn from him and one of the things that has always stood out to me once I started really examining his films was how consistently he shoots his movies wide mm-hmm. or like there'll be enti- these entire scenes that take place. And he'll have the camera on the other side of the room. And you're like, what? Why don't you get closer? Why don't you push that camera in? And then to find out that Lawrence of Arabia is his favorite film. And you watch this movie. And it's shot in really the same way. You go, oh, you internalized this movie to such a degree. I don't know if, I don't even know if he's aware of what he's doing. <laughs> you know, it's like, so it's like, it was fun. It was really cool to see that. And I actually look forward to the next time I get to sit down and watch a Spielberg film. Yeah. Um, just one kind of final note. I know you just set me up with like a perfect segue, but we'll get there. Um, I was just going to say one final note on uh, on Lawrence of Arabia. Is yeah. There is um, there's a lot of factual stuff in this movie, and a lot of this stuff did happen. 
at the same time, if you do watch it, just keep in mind there is some controversy about the way that Lawrence is pr- portrayed. Yeah. Some of the characters are amalgams of multiple characters, and uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff. It's like any movie. Like uh, think think like Braveheart. There's there is some truth in Braveheart, but it's a complete fiction. Yeah. Um, this movie is probably more factual than Braveheart is. Yeah. But at the same time, there's some some fictional elements to it. So don't just take it as, don't take it as, as complete truth, but at the same time, it's a brilliant film. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind, I I try to remind people of that, you know, when they start complaining about Braveheart, they start complaining about Titanic, anything, you go, keep in mind, this is a Hollywood film. Yeah. This isn't a documentary. This isn't trying to pose to you. This is exactly what happened. This is not history class. This is a movie. Which was made to entertain. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's uh, just a side note because uh, I know people can sometimes get caught up in in that, and we did, hadn't really touched on that. So yeah. that seemed like, like oh, something. No. Absolutely. Uh, going back to our previous segue, I uh, can't wait till the next time I get to sit down and watch a Steven Spielberg film. <laughs> Strange, you should mention that, Scott. What? <laughs> yes, because next time on this podcast, we are going to be talking about perhaps one of my all-time favorite Steven Spielberg films. What you say? Yes, it is number 66 on AFI's top 100 films, and it is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. I love them. Yeah. The Indiana Jones movies are great. Like, do we even need to do that podcast? Can we just go, it's it's magnificent, and uh, (laughs) and go watch it again now because it's wonderful? Uh, I mean, no. We'll we'll save save the analysis. Yeah, we'll save it for next time. So, uh, well, very cool. Uh, Guys, thank you for joining us on yet another episode we hope you uh, were entertained and informed uh, that's what we try to do and uh, if you were uh, let us know either on twitter movies you should on twitter uh, on our website movies you should love.com or our favorite place to talk with you is probably our facebook page facebook.com slash movies you should and as always if you're subscribed through like itunes or something like that leave us a rating because that helps us reach out to more people yeah, absolutely. Um, it know. helps us in that the more people when people comment on it itunes sees that and then they'll put it like they'll recommend it to other people yeah and that just it just brings more people into our club yeah so uh if you if you're enjoying what you're hearing share it help us share it rate us on iTunes. Uh, uh, especially if you're going to give us a high rating. We especially like yeah. those. Yeah. So, <laughs> a rating, uh, go rate somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Pretend it's us and rate them. <laughs> uh, we have a couple specific ones that we can... Po- no, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well we will see you guys next time. Uh, number 66 on AFI's Top 100 Raiders of Lost Ark. Oh, crap. Now we have to pay copyright money. <laughs> See you next time. You've been listening to the Movies You Should Love podcast. Join in the conversation at moviesyoushouldlove.com. 